Happy New Year's, Treks in Sci-Fi fans. This is Vartok again with another Music in Sci-Fi guest podcast, number 801, dated January 3rd, 2021. Woo! Finally, we can put 2020 into our hindsight. Unfortunately, was, how do you say, 2020 vision. What are you, nuts? Sorry about that, Chief. Sincerely, though, congratulations to Rico for continuing one of the longest-running podcasts on the planet. 800 podcasts and counting is quite an achievement. With the advent of broadband internet access and portable digital audio playback devices, such as the iPod, podcasting began to catch on in late 2004. Rico's Treks in Sci-Fi podcast has been on iTunes since September 2005, now over 15 years. And I am very happy to say that Rico has let me submit music-related segments since 2007. Moving on, for today's guest podcast, I'm going to talk about composer, conductor, and orchestrator James Roy Horner. How I've gone this long during the last 13 years without featuring composer James Horner is quite beyond me. Horner is well known for his scores to two Star Trek films, Braveheart, Avatar, Titanic, Aliens, The Rocketeer, and so much more. During today's podcast, I plan to provide a synopsis of his life and music. I am sad to say there will never be a need to provide an update since James died tragically in his personal stunt airplane in a 2015 crash, just short of his 62nd birthday. But more about that later in this podcast. And yes, I know a few of you out there may be thinking, oh no, another Vartok Marathon podcast. Yes, you're right. However, if you are a fan of soundtrack music like me, this should be fun. And I'm going to make it easier for you by splitting the music of Jane Horner into two parts. Today will be part one, covering his early life through his film score for Apollo 13. Part two will follow here on January 17th. So a big thanks once again to Rico for allowing me this opportunity. I led in with the jazzy track Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, played by Andrew Allen to elevate your mood. A lot of fun, right? As before, I will dip heavily into the IMDb, Wikipedia, Soundtrack.net, and YouTube for my primary reference materials for today's podcast. James Horner was born on August 14, 1953, in Los Angeles, California, to Jewish immigrant parents. His father, Harry Horner, was born in Bohemia, which was then a part of Austria-Hungary, and is now the Czech Republic. Harry emigrated to the United States in 1935 and worked as a set designer and art director. His mother, Joan, was born into a prominent Canadian family. Horner started playing piano at the age of five, and he also played violin. He spent his early years in London, where he attended the Royal College of Music. Upon returning to America, he attended Verde Valley School in Sedona, Arizona, and later received his bachelor's degree in music from USC the University of Southern California. He then continued his studies, earning his master's degree at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles. He then completed his PhD in music composition and theory, also at UCLA. After several scoring short film assignments with the American Film Institute in the 1970s, he finished teaching a course in music theory at UCLA, and then turned to Hollywood and film scoring. 
Over time, James would hook up with directors Wes Craven, Oliver Stone, Ron Howard, James Cameron, Jean-Jacques Anoud, Michael Apted, Mel Gibson, Edward Zwick, John Johnson, and many others. But let's back up and start with his early efforts. He started out composing music for six American Film Institute short films, all during 1978, ending with the short film The Watcher. In 1979, he provided his first major score for film with The Lady in Red for Roger Corman. A naive farm girl moves to Chicago and becomes trapped in a life of prostitution and crime. Sadly, no soundtrack album or even the theme has ever been released commercially. However, here are a few seconds of the soundtrack from the movie I found on YouTube so you can hear some of his earliest music. getting started. I'd like you to hear James's voice at this point so you can start to know the man. Here are two clips from a 2015 TED Talk where he is talking about working with directors and how he finds he has to guide them towards a good soundtrack for their movie. And then remembering at the end of the day, they are the customer. And very often directors will say, well, that's not what I had in mind at all. I shot it with this in mind, and I shot it this, and I shot it that, and I wanted this to happen. But when a bystander who's not been involved in the creation of making the movie looks at it, they have a whole different perspective. And it is not, as a film composer, you can't look at a film from the director's point of view. You have to look at it completely objectively. And the person you're working for says, yeah, but can you make it a little cuter, or can you make it a little happier, or can you make it a little... And you always have to sort of keep in mind that no matter what you do, you really are working for somebody else and somebody else's tastes. And the whole art of film composition, for me, has become one of gentle manipulation, not only of an audience, but that because that's my job, but also Gentle, gentle manipulation of the employer, the director in my case. James's career was underway. His next film score was for the 1980s sci-fi monster B-film Humanoids from the Deep, starring Doug McClure, Anne Turkel, and Vic Morrow. Apparently, when salmon are fed a growth hormone and eaten by larger fish, they become sex-hungry, murderous mutation humanoids. Hmm, that sounds a little bit like my two kids. Here is the end titles, track number 15. Included here is a means to illustrate another beginning point for Horner.
To me, James's first soundtrack that I really, really liked was his third score for the American space opera Battle Beyond the Stars, released in 1980, immediately after Humanoids. The film was his second Roger Corman shoestring B-movie, yet it surprisingly had a decent cast, including Richard Thomas as Shad, George Pappard as Cowboy, Robert Vaughn as Gilt, and John Saxon as the evil tyrannical warlord Sador, whose spaceship includes a planet-killing stellar converter. In essence, the film is a Magnificent Seven in outer space, with Shad flying around on a spaceship known as Nell, who you may remember as having two prominent breast shapes on her bow. Very interestingly, Corman hired someone named Jimmy Cameron as a model maker for his studio after being impressed with his short film Xenogenesis. When the original art director for the film was fired, Cameron became responsible for the majority of the film's special effects, or as Cameron later put it, production design and art direction. This was Cameron's first big break in the entertainment industry, and it helped to propel his career. While Cameron initially worked on camera rigging, he soon started working on special effects and production design of the interior sets. The space opera shoestring budget led to Cameron famously designing the spaceship's corridors out of spray-painted McDonald's containers. Cameron paid great attention to detail and hardly slept for weeks while working on the film. His hard work paid off, as the special effects were one aspect of the film highly received by both fans and critics, opening the door for his later successes. Why do I mention all of this? Both James's, Horner and Cameron, later became collaborators in two of the most successful films ever. Here is the main title, from Battle Beyond the Stars, which starts out with the use of an echoplex. Now that was stirring, and a clear indication of Horner's capabilities as a composer. Did you hear some foreshadowing of Star Trek sounding music in there? Hollywood took note of Horner's score, and he started to move up the composer's list. 
One year later, Horner was asked to score the crime horror film Wolfen, starring Albert Finney, Gregory Hines, and Edward James Olmos, who in 2003 would become Battlestar Galactica's Admiral Adama. The film follows a city cop who has been assigned to uncover what is behind a series of vicious murders. Originally, it was believed the murders are animal attacks, until the cop discovers an ancient Indian legend about wolf spirits. Unfortunately, the film did not recover its budget cost, although generally having positive reviews. The main title theme features a solo trumpet and hard-struck tubular bells for a creepy introduction. Let's listen. After Wolfen, Horner provided scores to the film's Deadly Blessing, The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, and three TV movies. Okay, I'm just not going to have enough time to even mention all of his film scores from here on in. However, the film score that added James Horner to the A-list of Hollywood composers arrived next in 1982, an amazing feat given it was just his fourth year in the business. Many composers can easily work in the industry for over a dozen years before making it big. The film? None other than Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Let's listen to James talk about Star Trek from a YouTube interview titled James Warner Talks Star Trek Wrath of Khan, posted in 2009. I knew very little about Star Trek. I wasn't a Star Trek watcher. I didn't really watch much television. I had visited, um, I'd come to know Jerry Goldsmith. I'd come to know John Williams. Um... I had come to know the art of scoring and putting music against picture and the mathematics. The big film of the year that I visited was Star Trek One, and I went to quite a few of those sessions because I was curious what Jerry would do, and 
he invited me to the sessions and I hung out a lot and um, that was sort of a big event for me to see that being conducted and that being put together. When I got hired by Nicholas Meyer, we had a couple of interviews and we liked each other and told me what his ideas were, which were very literary, very seafaring in his mind. The producer, Harv Bennett, would have probably been more comfortable had I reused material from the television show, but I chose not to do that, and Nick backed me up on that decision. They didn't want to repeat the theme of Star Trek I, they wanted a new theme. Nick wanted it to be seafaring, as I told you, so they didn't want to reuse or reference anything of Star Trek I, that was history now. So, um, we had to come up with a new theme, and it had to be very musical, and had to be memorable. Now let's hear one of Horner's personal favorite soundtracks. Number six, Enterprise Clears Moorings, from The Wrath of Khan. That fantastic scene where the Enterprise slowly clears the dry dock. Some of his best music ever.
In his own words, here is what James had to say about that track. One of my absolute favorite sequences of Star Trek um, was seeing it in dry dock. I just thought that was unbelievable. And the whole leaving dry dock for the first time. And I had to write a really long sequence to narrate that. And I had to make it perfect because I thought the sequence was perfect visually. The music works in a very special way. I want it to be as ship-like um, and as old-fashioned as it could be and as majestic as it could be. Of interest is that James Horner has followed Jerry Goldsmith twice by composing the scores for two sequels to movies Goldsmith scored before him. The first was this one, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in 1982, and the second was Aliens in 1986. Director Nicholas Meyer, who directed The Wrath of Khan, quipped that Horner was hired for Khan because the studio could no longer afford Jerry Goldsmith, but that by the time he returned to the franchise with Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, the studio couldn't afford Horner either. Up next was the movie score for the 1983 heroic fantasy swashbuckler film Crawl. Unfortunately, it was a box office bomb and probably should have been called Crud. I'm including Kroll here because, well, this is Treks and Sci-Fi, right? And there may be a few Kroll fans out there. Normally, James would be the first to say that the music should work with the film and not make you aware of it. However, I have to say, having just re-screened this film, that his score, although enjoyable, wholly overwhelmed the action on the screen. And I thought I'd never say that about a soundtrack. Here's track number 11, Leaving the Swamp, from Kroll, with the wonderful for orchestral treatment of the London Symphony Orchestra.
Also released in 1983 was James's score for the science fiction film Brainstorm, directed by special effects genius Douglas Trumbull, who provided many of the effects for 2001's A Space Odyssey, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Blade Runner, and others. The film starred Christopher Walken, Natalie Wood, who had mysteriously drowned before the film was completed, Louise Fletcher, and Cliff Robertson. Scientists invent a brain-computer interface enabling sensation to be recorded from a person's brain and converted to tape for others to experience. James won a Saturn Award for Best Music in 1983. Here I'll play just part of track number four, Michael's Gift to Karen, with a classical touch and the use of a choir for which James is known. The year 1983 was incredibly busy for Horner, as he provided a total of seven film scores and one TV film score. His other scores included Testament, The Dresser, Uncommon Valor, and Gorky Park. In 1984, he started the year with a score to The Stone Boy. Up next was his score for another Trex and Sci-Fi favorite film, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. If you recall, at the end of Star Trek II, Spock sacrifices his life to save the Enterprise. Let's hear James talk about his music for that relationship between Kirk and Spock. I wanted to make much more of Spock than had ever been done before. And that unique undercurrent of Spock and the captain, Jim. That was a relationship that had never played in anybody's approach. It had played, I guess, in some of the series, I was told, but never really, I wanted to make that bond very tight. And as it turned out, that was really important because there was a Star Trek um, 3, and that uh, bond ended up being the whole thing of Star Trek 3. I wanted to tell the story of two men and their friendship. And that's what I gleaned out of the series and out of the first movie. So the closer I could play that bond during the movie, the more I could make of that bond separation when Spock dies, the more I could break the audience's heart. Seeds I was sowing in 
Star Trek II were now going to be able to bloom and work in Star Trek III. And that was very important. And that was all part of sort of the work, how it was all going to be woven together. I have been, and always shall be, your friend. Now let's listen to track number six, Returning to Vulcan. So emotional, so sensual, a bit sad, but then full of hope and anticipation. In 1985, Horner provided scores to an even more incredible 13 entries in the IMDb. I will only cover two of those here. The first was his score for the film Cocoon, a science fiction comedy drama film directed by Ron Howard, about a group of elderly people rejuvenated by aliens. The film starred Don Amici, Wilford Brimley, Brian Dennehy, Stephen Gutenberg, Maureen Stapleton, Jessica Tandy, Gwen Verdon, and others. About 10,000 years ago, peaceful aliens from the planet Ontaria set up an outpost on Earth on Atlantis. When Atlantis sank, 20 aliens were left behind, kept alive in large, rock-like cocoons at the bottom of the ocean. Now a group of Ontarians have returned to collect them. Disguising themselves as humans, they rent a house with a swimming pool and charge the water with life force to give the cocooned Ontarians energy to survive the trip home. Next door is a retirement home. Three of its residents often trespass to swim in the pool next door. They absorb some of the life force, making them feel younger and stronger, sapping the energy in the pool. Here is the sublime track number 12, Theme from Cocoon.
wasn't that just great? And it goes to prove you don't have to be loud, bombastic music to be effective. The second film for 1985 that I'm going to mention is the American action film Commando by director Mark Lester, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as Colonel John Matrix, Radon Chong as Cindy, and others. Retired Delta Special Forces Colonel John Matrix is informed by his former superior that all other members of his former unit have been killed by unknown mercenaries. The mercenaries, among them Bennett, an Australian ex-member of Matrix's team discharged for excessive violence, attacks Matrix's secluded mountain home and kidnaps his young daughter Jenny, setting up the plot for Arnold to make things right. What is special about Horner's soundtrack is how different it is from nearly all of the other 1,100-plus soundtracks that I have in my Horner music collection. Listen to this strong drumbeat and hard edge, so perfect for an invincible fighting soldier, and different. James talk about the challenge of coming up with a new sound for each score. Again, from the 1985 TED Talk. The film world is very proprietary. When I do a film score, I am basically nothing more than a fancy pencil for hire. I don't own any of the music when I'm done. It belongs to the film company. And likewise, when I'm done, even if I come up with something astounding that I may want to revisit as though I was a painter and I say, oh God, I'm going to do another one right away. In the world of film composition, you can't do that because you don't own the creation. And therefore, each time out has to be a completely um, clean canvas, as it were. And if I come up with an interesting idea on film A and want to explore that, it's very hard to do that and bring it into film B without somebody saying, hey, that belongs to us, you can't do that. The next film of interest to sci-fi fanboys and fangirls is the science fiction film Aliens, with an S the second of currently six films in the Alien franchise that started in 1986. Former colleague James Cameron was the director and screenwriter. The film stars Sigourney Weaver as Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, the sole survivor of an alien attack on her ship, 
When communications are lost with a human colony on the moon on which her crew first encountered the alien creatures, Ripley agrees to return to the site with a troop of colonial marines to investigate. The film received a number of awards and nominations, including an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress for Weaver, at a time when the science fiction genre was generally overlooked. Since its release, Aliens is now considered to be among the greatest films of the 1980s, one of the best science fiction or action films ever made, and one of the best sequels ever made. It has been called equal to or better than the original Alien film directed by Ridley Scott. Aliens became Horner's and Cameron's first collaboration, one which Horner called a nightmare. He arrived in London to compose the score, expecting a six-week schedule. However, there was no film ready for him to score. By the time Cameron finished filming and editing, Horner now only had three weeks to come up with the score. The producers were unwilling to give him any more time. Horner recorded the score at Abbey Road Studio with the London Symphony Orchestra. His schedule was so tight that the score for the climactic battle between Ripley and the Queen was written overnight. Cameron first heard the score while it was being recorded by the orchestra and did not like it. However, it was too late to make changes. Cameron cut the score up using pieces where he believed they fit best. He inserted pieces of Jerry Goldsmith's Alien score, and he hired unknown composers to fill gaps. Cameron said in a later interview that he thought the score was good, but did not fit the scenes he had filmed. And so here is track number 17 called Bishop's Countdown, which incidentally is the fifth most commonly used soundtrack cue in film trailers, used at least 24 times as of 2011. news. The word is that yet another Aliens franchise film is in development with Ridley Scott at the helm, soon to be released in October of 2021, later this year. James's first collaboration with Steven Spielberg came about in a 1986 film, An American Tale, with tales being spelled T-A-I-L. It is an animated musical adventure comedy drama film which tells the story of Fievel Mouskowicz and his family as they emigrate from Shasta, Russia, to the United States for freedom. 
However, Fievel gets lost from his family and must find a way to reunite with them. It received mixed reviews, but with a box office hit, making it the highest grossing non-Disney animated film at the time. Its success, along with The Land Before Time and Disney's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, both in 1988, prompted executive producer Steven Spielberg to establish his own animation studio, Amblimation, in London. Spielberg's original vision for the film was as a musical. It was said he wanted a hi-ho of his own, referring to the popular song from Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Composer Jerry Goldsmith was initially supposed to work on the score, but had to drop out of the film due to a busy schedule, opening the door for Horner. After the first round of songs were written, it was decided a special song would be written to sing over the end credits, called Somewhere Out There. It was composed by Horner and Barry Mann, with lyrics by Cynthia Wheel, and it won a Grammy Award and became one of the most popular songs from an animated feature since the 1950s. And here is track number nine. Film scores later in 1987, James Horner provided the music for Project X, a science fiction comedy drama film directed by Jonathan Kaplan. The plot revolved around U.S. Air Force Airman Jimmy Garrett, played by Matthew Broderick, and a graduate student, Terry McDonald, played by Helen Hunt, who are assigned to care for chimpanzees used in a secret Air Force project. Unbeknownst to Jimmy, once the chimps reach a certain level in operating the flight simulator, they will be exposed to a lethal pulse of radiation to determine how long a pilot may survive after a nuclear exchange and carrying out a second strike. When Jimmy becomes aware of the chimp's fate, he contacts Terry, who comes to the base to help rescue the chimp. Don't worry, 
In the end, the chimp Virgil and his girlfriend escaped to the Everglades to become an invasive species, but we didn't worry about it that much at the time. Once again, James Horner has used a solo wind instrument for the melody. Another sci-fi film following Project X for Horner, with a release also in 1987, was the comic science fiction film Batteries Not Included. The story is about small extraterrestrial living spaceships that save an apartment block under threat from property development. The aliens fix things that thugs damage in order to try and get the tenants to leave. The story was originally intended to be featured in the television series Amazing Stories, but executive producer Steven Spielberg liked the idea so much that he decided to adapt it into a film. 
Here is the main title soundtrack to Batteries Not Included. Over his career, James Horner has incorporated the big band sound into a number of his scores, which I really appreciate having been a trumpet player for over a dozen years in my youth. Up next for James was another collaboration with director Ron Howard, with the 1987 film Willow, a dark fantasy adventure drama film. It was produced by George Lucas and written by Bob Dolman from a story by Lucas. It starred Warwick Davis as a dwarf and aspiring sorcerer, Willow Uffgood, Val Kilmer as Mad Mardigan the Mercenary Swordsman, Joanne Wiley as Sorcia, Jean Marsh as the villainous Queen Bavmorda, and Billy Barty as the wizard, the High Aldwin. Willow is the reluctant farmer who plays a critical role in protecting a baby from the tyrannical Queen Bavmorda, who vows to destroy her and take over the world. George Lucas had approached Warwick Davis to play the part of Willow, who at the time was playing Wicket the Ewok in The Return of the Jedi. Five years later, it happened. Here is the heroic Willow's theme, track number six from the film.
Once again, you can hear a solo wind instrument starting at 1 minute and 30 seconds into the song. If you are a Willow fan, take note that Disney Plus is in development of a Willow series to be released in 2022. And did you know that Warwick Davis has now appeared in at least nine Star Trek films? Another Arnold Schwarzenegger film was in James's 1988 Inbox, with the score for Red Heat, an action buddy cop comedy crime thriller film written, produced, and directed by Walter Hill. The film stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Moscow militia captain Ivan Danko and Jim Belushi as captain detective Art Ridzik. Finding themselves on the same case, Danko and Ridzik work as partners to catch a cunning and deadly Georgian drug kingpin, Victor Rostovili, who happens to be the killer of Danko's previous partner back in Soviet Russia. See, if you don't like the intense action sound of track number 19, Moscow Shootout and Pursuit. Two film scores later, Horner provided the music for The Land Before Time, the first of a new franchise, and released in 1988. The animated adventure drama film was directed and produced by Don Bluth, and executive produced by Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall. Produced by the American companies Amblin Entertainment and Lucasfilm, and the Sullivan Bluth Studios, it features dinosaurs living in prehistoric times. The plot concerns a young Apatosaurus named Littlefoot, who is orphaned when his mother is killed by a vicious carnivore. Horner had previously provided music for An American Tale, giving him the inside track. The film's theme song, If We Hold On Together, was sung by Diana Ross, peaking at number 23 on the U.S. adult contemporary charts. But I'm not going to choose that track, instead deciding on the last park at track number 7 for the end credits.
Skipping ahead three film scores, James provided the soundtrack for the 1989 release of the sports fantasy drama film Field of Dreams, written and directed by Phil Alden Robinson. With an all-star cast including Kevin Costner, Amy Madigan, James Earl Jones, Ray Liotta, and Burt Lancaster in his final film role, it was nominated for three Academy Awards, including for Best Original Score for Horner. The film follows 36-year-old Ray Kinsella, played by Costner, who lives with his wife Annie and daughter Karen on their Iowa corn farm. He is troubled by his broken relationship with his late father, John Kinsella, a devoted baseball fan, and constantly fears growing old without ever achieving anything. Walking through his cornfield one evening, he hears a voice whispering, If you build it, he will come. He sees a vision of a baseball diamond in the cornfield and the great shoeless Joe Jackson standing in the middle. Ray believes if he builds a baseball field, shoeless Joe, whom his father idolized, can play baseball again. Annie is skeptical, but agrees to him plowing under part of their corn crop to build a baseball field, knowing the financial hardship it will bring. At first, James Horner was unsure if he could work on the film due to scheduling restrictions. Then he watched a rough cut and was so moved that he accepted the job of scoring it. Director Robinson had created a temp track which was disliked by Universal executives. When the announcement of Horner as composer was made, they felt more positive because they expected a big orchestral score, similar to Horner's work for An American Tale. Horner, in contrast, liked the temporary score, finding it quiet and kind of ghostly. He decided to follow the concept of the temp track, creating an atmospheric soundtrack which would focus on emotions. In an interview posted on YouTube in 2011, we heard director Robinson and Horner talk about the film score and James's reaction to seeing it for the first time. We showed it to James Horner, uh, who was deciding whether or not to score the film. Uh, he came in to look at it at an early stage. He was the first person not associated with the movie to that point to see it. He was the first person coming in cold. And uh, we showed him the film, and when the lights came up, he got up and left the room. And I thought, oh my God, it's so bad, he can't even say, it's interesting, but you know what, fellas, I'm too busy to do it. He just left the room. And I, I, I almost, the, the veins in my wrist opened up almost by themselves. And his agent, uh, Mike Gorfain, said, geez, fellas, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say. You know, I apologize. And he went out into the hallway, and he came back and he said, uh, James is composing himself out there. He was so moved. And he was, in fact, he came back in very teary-eyed, and he said, uh, I'm speechless. And I said, well, you don't have to say much, just say yes. And he said, yes. And that's the day I thought, wow, this is different. This is, this is good. From the same interview, they discussed the studio's reaction to the temp score versus what was ultimately used. And the studio saw the movie, and they liked the movie very much, but they said, boy, that temporary score is terrible. Get rid of that. And they said, who's going to score the film? I said, well, I'm hoping James Horner will. And they said, oh, good, he'll, he'll do like big orchestra things. He'll make it fine. So I remember when I showed you the film, you said how much you loved the temporary score, and I said, I did too, and, and you said, but I heard the studio hated it. I said, yeah, and you said, don't worry, we'll, we'll do this. <laughs> yeah, I had just done Feifel, uh, what was right, that? American uh, Tale. American Tale, and the studio was very infatuated with that, that thing, that or big orchestra stuff, which was, of course, not appropriate for Field of Dreams, but they don't know that, right. and so <laughs> they just said, that sounded great, do that for this. Right. And what I thought the temp score, your temp score did, was so um, quiet and sort of ghostly that mm. um, I thought Big Orchestra was the last thing I'd ever attempt to put into that, into a Field of Dreams. Here is track number three titled Shoeless Joe, 
to Field of Dreams, featuring two panpipe players flown in from Europe just for the score. You can also hear a repeated lower piano keys riff that James has used in more than a few of his film scores that I see as one of his trademark cues. Two films later, Horner was asked to provide the score to the 1989 comic science fiction film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. The plot involves the story of an inventor who accidentally shrinks his own and his next-door neighbor's children to a quarter of an inch with his electromagnetic shrinking machine and then accidentally throws them out with the trash where they must venture into their backyard to return home while fending off insects and negotiating hazards. An unexpected box office success, it grossed $222 million worldwide and became the highest-grossing live-action Disney film ever, a record it held for five years. However, more than any other film, James's score garnered him unexpected attention for musical borrowing by reusing passages from earlier compositions and for featuring brief excerpts and rework themes from classical composers. Here's a bit of one complaint where one reviewer I found on a 2020 YouTube entry notes Horner's borrowing of five tunes. He's also kind of known for lifting material from other composers and even himself, by the way. A perfect example of these lifts is in the early 90s Disney film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which we recently covered on our podcast and gave an unprecedented zero in the originality category. So let's find out if James Horner really did go too far with lifting music from other composers. On our episode, we claimed James Horner lifted from five separate pieces of music. Raymond Scott's Powerhouse, Danny Elfman's Pee-wee, Dave Grusin's The Goonies, Aaron Copland's Hoedown, and Nina Rota's Amacord. 
Let's do a back-to-back comparison on those to see what's up. pretty sure James Horner knew he was borrowing those themes, and to him and presumably everyone, it was obvious where the themes came from. In regards to other passages of his music, he had this response, again from his TED Talk. So my world is very, very closed down creatively compared to other disciplines, dance, painting, almost anything else I can think of, writing. It's, it's just amazing. And with music, at least from my perspective, everybody feels that they recognize music, recognize themes, so everybody feels they always recognize somebody's style, or doesn't that thing sound like something else? And that's always part of the film world. In 1990, Jane provided a new universal movie theme, which was used until 1997. You are sure to recognize it. Skipping ahead to his second film score in 1991 was the legal drama film Class Action, directed by Michael Apted, based upon a lawsuit concerning injuries caused by a defective automobile. I've chosen to include track number 12, end title, owing to its jazzy new wave sound, a much different style of music for James Horner, once again revealing his breadth. It is also the only album I have of Horner's that says composed and performed by James Horner on the cover.
That was kind of nice, wasn't it? The sax solo? Another 1991 corner score that is one of my personal favorites is his score to the Disney superhero film The Rocketeer, which tells the story of a stunt pilot, Cliff Secord, played by Billy Campbell, who stumbles upon a hidden rocket-powered jetpack that he uses thereafter to fly without the need for an aircraft. His heroic deeds soon attract the attention of Howard Hughes and the FBI, who are hunting for the missing jetpack, as well as Nazi operatives that stole it from Hughes. I really like the fight scenes on and around the Nazi Zeppelin. Here is the main title track, with its perfect sound of the right stuff, although that was composed by Bill Conti.
Moving ahead three films, we come to Horner's score for the 1992 action thriller film Patriot Games, loosely based on Tom Clancy's 1987 novel of the same name. The film is a sequel to the 1990 film The Hunt for Red October, but with different actors in the leading roles. Now with Harrison Ford starring as Jack Ryan, James Earl Jones reprised his role as Admiral James Greer. The plot begins with retired CIA analyst Jack Ryan being on vacation with his family in London. Ryan and his family witness an assassination attempt on Lord William Holmes, Minister of State for Northern Ireland, except Ryan intervenes. Injured in the attack, Ryan kills two of the assailants, one being 16-year-old Patrick Miller, while his older brother Sean looks on. While recovering, Ryan is called in to testify in court against Sean Miller who is part of a splinter cell of the IRA. Sean is convicted for his crimes and swears revenge against Ryan, setting up the action for the rest of the film. Here's part of Closing Credits, track number 10. Once again, skipping ahead eight films this time, we come to the 1993 drama film Searching for Bobby Fischer. The film plot was adopted from the book of the same name and uses Fischer's name in the title and images in the film. Even though the film and the book are about the life of chess prodigy Joshua Waitzkin, whose father wrote the book. Outside of the United States, the film was released with the title Innocent Moves. The title refers to the search for Fisher's successor after his disappearance from competitive chess, since Waitzkin's father feels his son Josh could be that successor. Fisher himself never saw the film and complained that it invaded his privacy by using his name without his permission, and he was never compensated. Some actual famous chess players have brief cameos in the film. I just screened this film, which by the way retains a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. With the current chess craze brought on by The Queen Gambit, I highly recommend it. Here is track number five titled Josh vs. Dad. 
a perky piano solo full of hope and anticipation. Warner's first film score for 1994 was to the political action thriller film Clear and Present Danger, based upon Tom Glancy's 1989 novel of the same name. It was preceded by the 1990 film The Hunt for Red October and the 1992 film Patriot Games, all three featuring Clancy's character Jack Ryan. It is the last film version of Clancy's novels to feature Harrison Ford as Ryan and James Earl Jones as Vice Admiral James Greer. As in the novel, Ryan is appointed CIA Acting Deputy Director of Intelligence and soon discovers he is being kept in the dark by colleagues who are conducting a covert war against a drug cartel in Colombia, apparently with the approval of the president. Of the two music releases for the score, you want to get the Entrada Records label release since it includes the complete score, remixed from the original Scoring Master tapes. Here is part of the main title track, full of soaring French horn and trumpet blares, followed by stirring strings. At this point, I would have to say James Horner was in his prime, providing quality scores film after film, in a volume usually associated with the peak output of a composer's career. He became much more selective later on in his career on which assignments he would accept. His next score was for the 1994 live-action animated fantasy adventure film The Page Master, starring Macaulay Culkin as Richard Tyler, Christopher Lloyd, Hoopy Goldberg, Patrick Stewart, Leonard Nimoy, Egg Begley Jr., and Mel Harris. Wow, three Star Trek famous actors in one non-Star Trek film. Richard Tyler is a timid boy who uses statistics 
as an excuse to avoid anything he finds uncomfortable in life, but after reluctantly taking out an errand for his father, he gets caught in a storm. He takes refuge and then becomes trapped inside of a library, where he must battle his way through literary classics that come to life if he is to find his way home. Unfortunately, the film was a box office bust, earning less than half of its budget cost. I've chosen to showcase part of track number eight titled Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, since this was a track for Leonard Nimoy's namesake character in the film. Entering 1995, James Horner provided the score for his second Mel Gibson-directed film. The first was for The Man Without a Face in 1993. The second film was the epic historical fiction war film Braveheart. Eleven years later, he would collaborate one more time with Gibson for the 2006 film Apocalypto. Braveheart portrays Mel Gibson as William Wallace, a late 13th century Scottish warrior. The film detects the life of Wallace, leading the Scots in the First War of Scottish Independence against King Edward I of England. The film, in spite of historical inaccuracies, was a financial success, and at the 68th Academy Awards, the film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, winning five, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Makeup, and Best Sound Effects Editing. 
Horner was nominated for Best Original Dramatic Score, but lost to Louise Bakalov's Il Postino, that is, The Postman. However, the soundtrack did go platinum in Europe, Canada, and the U.S. Here is the beautiful track number 11, For the Love of a Princess, once again featuring Horner's use of a solo wind instrument in the beginning, building to an orchestral crescendo and then falling off into the distance. It was difficult picking just one soundtrack from that album. So many great tracks. The year 1995 saw yet another hit film for which James Horner had chosen to be the composer for Ron Howard's classic film docudrama Apollo 13. The film detects astronauts Jim Lovell, played by Tom Hanks, Jack Swigert, played by Kevin Bacon, and Fred Hayes, played by Bill Paxton, aboard Apollo 13 for America's fifth crewed mission to the moon which was intended to be the third to land. 
en route to the moon, an onboard oxygen tank explosion deprived their spacecraft of much of its oxygen supply and electrical power, which forces NASA flight controllers to abort the moon landing and turns the mission into a struggle to get the three men home safely. Ron Howard went to great lengths to create a technically accurate movie, employing NASA's assistance in astronaut and flight controller training for his cast and obtaining permission to film scenes aboard a reduced-gravity aircraft for a realistic depiction of the weightlessness experienced by the astronauts in space. The film was a huge financial success and was nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning Best Film Editing and Best Sound. Horner's score was nominated for Best Original Dramatic Score at the same time as for his score for Braveheart. Imagine how Horner felt losing to Il Postino, having two of the five nominations that year. Here is the main title theme for Apollo 13, with its melancholy solo trumpet theme. Oh my God, that music is such a perfect marriage to the tenor of the movie. And that, my friends, is the end of part one for the music of composer James Horner. In two weeks' time, look for part two here on the Treks and Sci-Fi podcast. Thank you for listening. Much of the music you heard in this podcast today can be found over at iTunes. Next week, Rico will host a podcast on Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery. I will end today's Part 1 of the music of composer James Horner 
was another track from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, with part of track number eight titled Genesis Countdown. Countdown. 